Well, the world don't love us and the world don't care But there ain't nothing in the world can touch us there We swing our front wheels into line out on the street We got torn for mica and an old jukebox for four Nickels and dimes, you can hear music that rocks And you can hear your heart in time to the beat And maybe you're in my eyeline You're gonna dance with me tonight And there you can be someone to us if you know one. Or when we go to the lake of fire, we go to the lake of fire. Hello, and welcome to episode six of the Counterforce Podcast. I'm your host, Aug Stone. We were just listening to a demo of Lake of Fire from Simon and Delicate's new musical, Paradise Rocks a reimagining of Milton's Paradise Lost as if it were one of Elvis's Hawaii movies. The show debuted at the Kingshead Theatre in London in June, and there will be further dates around the UK this year. There's a showreel online that looks great, so let's find a way to get them some more money so they can keep putting it on. You might know Simon's band, The Indelicates, and if you don't, I highly recommend checking them out. Their second album, Songs for Swinging Lovers, is one of my favorite records of all time. Killer songs, which are very catchy, with lyrics that are both biting and poetic. In this podcast, we talk about Simon's early days with performance poetry, before getting the story behind the Paradise Rocks musical, and a brief history of the Indelicates, Corporate Records, and Simon's other musicals. There's a bit where we talk about Simon and his friends recreating Bill Drummond and Mark Manning's journey from their book Bad Wisdom, and if you haven't read it, I can't recommend this enough. The book is Bill and Z's Diaries when they decided to bring an icon of Elvis wrapped in a Bon Scott t-shirt to the Arctic where they'd place it on the North Pole to send good vibes down through the latitude lines and save the world. Ian Sinclair called it a monumentally sane project carried through by madmen. So that's what we're talking about there. But let's just get to the interview, shall we? So my first question is always, what made you fall in love with music when you were a kid? Oh... God, that's genuinely difficult. Um, I mean, I remember, I remember playing. I think it's which is the Queen album with like the sort of the the, the round, there's like a big round circle on the front. And I think is it jazz something like that. I remember my friend putting that record. I remember spending ages going through records in my dad's cabinet and putting them on, and that one being the hardest one we could find. Um, so that, but then I suppose, and then I suppose, I was into. Uh, it's the falling in love question that, that's interesting because I'm not sure that I suppose I, it was like buying things like Carter's. I think the first proper album that I'd still be proud of owning would be like 30 something, the Carter USM record. And I remember buying that on vinyl specifically and then just playing that over and over again. And I think that was the point probably where I would have thought, yeah, this is, I just can't get enough of this and I just want to keep doing this forever. Because I think I know, I think probably the first single I ever bought would have been like Cliff Richards' like hundredth single, on the basis that you had to buy it because it was historic. But I'm not sure if falling in love is quite how I describe that. And and I wouldn't want to now. You might get in trouble. How about what got you hooked? Would that would that be Carter? Yeah, well, like yeah, probably Carter. 
And like, because I think it was Carter was like, I was young enough to be um, not young enough to sort of be just blown away by, with how impressively, how impressively great everything was, rather than like. And also, I suppose be, until then, it had been kind of like people would listen to Nirvana and stuff, and like cool music would have been American music, and um, Carter would have been the first band that I was kind of like. It was clever, and it was all about setting, like using lyrics to do more than just. Um, augment sound um in a way that you could that felt sort of english and something you could connect to and although i took, tended to grow up to like hate englishness and everything about it it's like i think something about like 30 something and then the love album would really like just just yeah i think those are probably yeah those are what i was hooked on those from a good from that moment on really how old are you then probably 12 when i got them i'm not sure if that i'm not sure if i probably wouldn't have bought them exactly as they came out so 1992 yeah, it probably would have been 1992, so I would have been 12. Okay. When did you start playing music yourself? Um, I used to have piano lessons, which I hated. And I used to go across the road to a woman who, um, I think she taught piano at Eton, but like she would take other pupils as well. So, and like where I grew up was fairly, it was like, I don't know, like 20 miles from Eton, so she would, she would go and teach piano there. But then she'd like teach people in the village for, however, whatever fraction of what she charged at Eton. And I used to have to go down a dark passageway to get to her house, which was full of like snakes. And she would, um, she would be like, she used to say things, she was like, oh, I'm terribly sorry. My pussy has left hairs all over this stool. If you just brush them off. She was a very old woman. But, and, and I used to hate having piano lessons so much and was just desperate to give them up. Um, but I'd kind of taken piano because my dad wanted me to play guitar. So I was like, well, I'm not going to play guitar because that's what my dad wants. So I'm going to play piano. But then I hated it. But then having given up piano, I then started playing guitar. And at no point did I ever have any guitar lessons. And that just suited me a lot better. So I used to make it up. Um, and I think I taught myself guitar by, uh, I had like a complete Who songbook. So I used to copy Pete Townsend's like rhythm guitar playing with the chords that I had in that book. Um, and that's basically how I learned guitar and that was just a lot better than having like grade two at the piano which i was terrible at why did your dad want you to play guitar um because my dad was in a band called marzipan pleasure dome when he was at school and they supported slade once before slade i think slade was still at school but like slade they did support slade which my dad so my dad was like was banging to um his children <laughs> being in rock bands in a way in a sort of i think in a vague way i don't think he ever I, I imagine he probably didn't, if you asked him, did he genuinely want that to happen, probably would have said, no, of course not, I'd like him to do something sensible. But as it was, I don't know, I, I took it all to heart. Deep down, while while on the top level, resenting and rebelling against it, deep down it must have gone in. So that's how it ended up. Because usually it's the other way around. Like the piano is seen as like the practical instrument your parents want you to learn for like a basis in all music, whereas the guitar is like strictly rock and roll. Yeah, the guitar's cooler. And I think my dad just wanted, there was no. I think Marzipan Pleasure Dome had a theremin, but I don't think they had a piano. So, yeah. You started off with performance poetry. How did you get yes. to that? Um, well, I, I guess I. I mean, I went to university in Brighton um, and didn't really make any friends at university. I couldn't really get on with people, and I'd gone to study English, and I hated the the way that English was taught I wasn't interested in I don't know it was like I wasn't particularly interested in like theory I was more interested in like writing things and you know pretentious stuff I guess but like um 
but I was like, I was into, I was into a level of pretension, but not the full-on pretension that had become the norm in, in the university. So I didn't really make any friends there, and I used to spend all my time hanging around poetry slams in Brighton. Um, so I guess I just, I used to, I don't know, I'd always kind of written poetry, and I didn't really see music as something even remotely viable because I grew up somewhere that wasn't what you could do really so but but i was so so i used to stand and do these performance poems and then there was quite a vibrant scene at the time um like competitive slam poetry but a lot but a lot better a lot of what you get now in slam poetry is kind of much more friendly but back then it was really threatening and unpleasant and um you used to i think the first time i ever went to the poetry slam i read out some stuff and and the guy jeff who used to own the venue would like throw bottle caps at you if you're rubbish and I like went out in the first round and it was really traumatic but I spent like a whole month getting better and so the time that I went back the second time I went to Poetry Slam I won the Poetry Slam just out of sheer like because I was so annoyed about how badly it had gone the first time so I think it was like it was just a really good environment back then to like it made you feel really unwelcome until you tried really hard and then and, and so it kind of made you do that and so I did that for a, a few years really and it was all very um I don't know very young manny <laughs> so you, there was lots of like yes we shall uh we'll be the new ezra pound and stuff and we'll we'll uh we'll embrace um <laughs> embrace dodgy political ideologies and, and and change the world through the sheer power of verse and so i used to believe that quite strongly and then it turned out that, that poetry is mainly not like that <laughs> it's mainly just sort of people um frumpishly being jealous of each other so <laughs> i got bored of that and moved on <laughs> What poets got you into poetry? Oh, I was super into I was the, you know the obvious ones when you're a teenager. I'd be super into like Ginsberg and um, and that whole the, the whole Beat Generation stuff. And then later on, I was really I mean, genuinely was really into Ezra Pound, like because it's really really difficult. It's the sort of irritating, difficult, grumpy poetry for Ezra Pound from the turn of the century. And obviously, you, you kind of both both um, Ginsberg and Ezra Pound are super problematic now because all kind of stuff has come out about Ginsberg in the last. 10 years or so um and obviously Ezra Pound was just a an out and out fascist but he used to do things like he'd write poems about just just basically just sneering about women he'd seen and, and things like that but it was, it was so perfectly arch and perfectly nasty and cruel that like that really appealed to me at the time and I think you know he'd, he'd write stuff like poems about how it was wrong to plague fu the future with a testament and you shouldn't really write poems at all if you could help it and it just, I don't know, it just, it, so I was, I was super into that, um, that, that kind of cruelty and nastiness. In fact, that's the thing that like got Julia, when I finally managed to convince Julia to like Bob Dylan, it was because by convincing her that Bob Dylan was really cruel. And she sort of noticed one day that like, don't think twice, it's all right, it's a really horrible song. And that made her like him. So it was kind of, it was a very similar thing. That's, that's where we, um, that's where our worldview came, just, just being horribly as elegantly as, po horrible as elegantly as possible. So yeah, that kind of stuff. Um, and then I, I mean, I was I did lots of um, I read a lot of um, I was doing a degree in like Renaissance literature, so I had lots of Milton and Spencer and stuff like that, um, which obviously is going to come up. <laughs> but, um, read, I, used to, I was very into like Paradise Lost. A lot. I was always into Paradise Lost, so I thought that was good. So. And you told me once, I, I think when you were at university, you recreated the journey from Bad Wisdom, Bill Drummond. Uh, when I well, after, just after I left school, yeah. Everyone was going to India, and I convinced my friend, two of my friends, that the only good thing to do was to go to the North Pole with an icon of Elvis. Um, and we sort of almost did. <laughs> we just booked a, God, this was a really long time ago. We booked like um, 
plane ticket to Helsinki and then just got on a train and just kept going north until we until we couldn't go any further um, carrying this like on a velvet. And I think I think I'm sure at least one of the people I was with had just no idea what was happening. <laughs> just I don't think you'd even read it. It's just, like, just like yeah, we're doing this thing. It's in a book. It's like Bill Bryson only for you know mental people. Um, and it ended up on the shores of the most northerly fjord in in Norway in, near Laxelv, I think it is. With this icon of Elvis, just going, yeah, yeah this is significant. <laughs> this is, this is. Don't worry about it. It's just significant. You'll look back on this with pleasure. I imagine that does not happen. <laughs> yeah, did that. So, what did you do with the icon when you got it as far north as you could? We just. I think I wrote Callisti in Greek on the beach with a stick, and then uh, left it by that. It was kind of discordian ritual that I made up. I was eighteen. I didn't know what I was doing, but um, I don't know. And actually. The idea, I think, in Bad Wisdom is that it's supposed to save the world and that the emanations of like peace and goodwill will, will come down through longitudinal ley lines to give to create peace in the world. And actually, since then, the world's just obviously got much worse. So I think I did it wrong. <laughs> so I've, I don't know. I must have accidentally taken an evil icon of Elvis to, to the North Pole because it didn't work. I mean, obviously, like the, the Bill Drummond and... And Z didn't do it right either because the world's just clearly worse. The Discordians now, they're not doing that. Um, they've moved. The current Discordian current is away from sowing chaos and confusion. It's now trying to create moments of orderly wonder instead. It's like wonderism. They've kind of moved on because they've realised that, um, you know, with mean magic and all this stuff, that like Trump, that all the, the magical rituals that used to be the realm of chaos magic have been adopted by the alt-right and are now taking over the world so the only way to combat that is to stop certain confusion and it's no longer about chaos it's all about it's all about moments of wonder and and order now so there's a, there's new currents in discordianism that are very contrary to what discordianism used to be so it's worth keeping an eye on that how did you get into robert anton wilson oh actually actually that normally you go, I've no idea, that's a weird question to answer, but actually I know exactly how. I've got a book that someone bought me when I was like 16, and it's called The Slacker Handbook, right, which is a sort of cash-in, Generation X. It's just a book, it's a book basically to for concerned parents in the 90s to buy for their Generation X children to make, to, to, it's like a stupid cash-in book, but in that book it's got like lists of the sort of things you would read in Austin if you were a slacker. In a sort, it's really like insulting. It's like the gap of books. But it's like <laughs> I've got this. But someone had given me this book, going, "Yeah, you're a you're a slacker. You'll like this." And in that, it's got a list of books. And I just kind of worked my way through. And it was like you know, read Kafka and um, like Oblomov and all these all these things. And, like, and uh, I think the Illuminati trilogy was on there. So I just picked up that. And it is one of those wellspring books that once you read the Illuminati trilogy, just like almost everything you read for like the next decade is something that is from that. So it was, it was a good book to get into at the age of probably like 16, 17, I guess. Um, but yeah, so specifically because of this cheap cash-in slacker handbook that uh, someone bought me. Because I just remember, because you get like, you could get that um, Loom Panics catalogue. And I remember getting that when I was at some point, because that was the only way you could buy the Principia Discordia, was you had to order it from the Loom Panics. And so they would send, I think they were in North Carolina, and they would send you their giant catalogue. And everything in that catalogue was amazing. Like, it was all, like, coup d'etat, practical handbook, and, like, the occult technology of power, and all these amazing underground books that were only published by, like, this one mail-order catalogue in North Carolina. And, like, it was kind of, it kind of, everything's like that now. So everything is some weird pamphlet that someone's made and published. But like back then, it was it was, it was just really exciting. Like I've still got a couple of those, not like the best the best things in the world. Just just catalogs, just to read the catalogs themselves are great. So yeah, I mean it's, it's, 
it's, it's, it's good because everyone has, has access to that sort of stuff now, but you don't really have to try at all back then. It's kind of you have to try a bit harder. So, yeah. So you took the the head of Elvis. I assume it was an Elvis head, like in Bad Wisdom. It was actually just a, it was a like a printed out picture in a frame with um, like discordian slogans around the side, as, as I remember. Okay. Now, did Elvis mean something to you personally then, or were you just taking it from bad wisdom? I'm trying to decide. That's interesting, because like Elvis always did. I feel like Elvis, because it's been a long, a while now. So I've done a lot of stuff to do with Elvis over the years, which makes me think that he's, but I'm trying to work out whether I did that before. And that's a really interesting question. It's, I feel like I... Yeah, I feel like possibly I wasn't super into Elvis stuff when we did that. And that probably was because of Bad Wisdom. And then since then, Elvis just keeps coming up. Yeah, I think that, I think, I think that's probably the right way around. When did you get really into Elvis then? Well, so probably just after that. I mean, I was kind of, I remember when we did, we're doing, okay, so I was doing the performance poetry stuff in Brighton. And it, it kind of got to the point where me and my friend Michael, we decided that the only, that, that poetry nights in general were too polite and quiet and boring and that the best way we could think of to make them not that was to kind of run poetry nights like they were christian revivalist meetings so we we got like super into um just yeah just like we used to call it like fundamentalist poetry we had a night called holy 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 which was named after and uh, the footnote to Hal, the Allen Ginsberg, but also we just we did it. So you'd be coming, we'd be like, we weren't accepting. I mean, like no polite applause. Everyone had to like shout hallelujah at the end of stuff. And we'd be like, go, come on, go. Can I get a yes, sir, everybody? I want to hear a yes, sir. I want to hear this. I mean, you know, so we'd do all that. And then part of that, we'd, we'd, was a lot of Elvis stuff. We used to do a lot of Elvis covers and things on the basis that there's kind of that gospel tradition. And we used to do like American Trilogy in between sort of people's poetry readings and stuff like that. So got into Elvis a lot then. And then I'd had this idea about um, about Milton and Elvis, which is which is sort of what's led into what I'm doing right at the moment. But like the Paradise Lost had this sort of fundamental similarity to the narrative around Elvis movies and also around like things like Dirty Dancing and stuff. So, and I think when I did that, that would have been, well, I'll just get right into that. I. Um, I had that idea that, that, that you know, there was this fundamental similarity between Paradise Lost and like Elvis movies set in Hawaii and decided that the best way to deal with that would be to write an epic poem about that. So I'd like, rewrite Paradise Lost, but as an epic poem in iambic pentameter. And then I'd have like me and three other people would read it out. Um, and in between like books, I do covers of Elvis songs because loads of the other songs really fit into it. When you start thinking about it, that's like devil in disguise and like evil and all these, everything just sort of kind of fits together. So I got like super into like Elvis impersonation as an adjunct to doing this epic performance poetry. And we did that once and, you know, it was fine, like sold out a vegan cafe in Hove and did that once and then like sort of just put it on a back burner. But I was kind of, I'd keep going back to Elvis. As a result, because I suppose the thing, the thing with Elvis is it's like, I mean, the John Lennon quote is like, before Elvis, there was nothing. And it's kind of that, which obviously is racist, isn't it? Because there was loads of stuff before Elvis. But like, there is, um, there is a sense that Elvis kind of embodies this, um, this figure of like pure rebellion. And like, the idea that you, you just, you know, the, the James Dean, the, what are you rebelling against? What have you got thing? Is that, is that Monogram? Whoever it is. Um, 
yeah, Jane Dean. Um, but that kind of just like pure rebellion, you just rebel against whatever, you just subvert the dominant paradigm, whatever it is, and that's the kind of the, the first moral obligation, that kind of Luciferian idea, which kind of reaches its its apotheosis, to use a term that probably doesn't quite fit, um, in Elvis. And it's like, it's, it's like the archetypal figure who represents that just, and you know, kind of everyone since Elvis is like a version of Elvis and like even Bowie and, and Glam is kind of, it's a version of that slightly androgynous, slightly weird, but just pure rebellion through the form of rock and roll. So you kind of, the more you kind of build that idea into, um, into an archetype, you know, into a kind of holy avatar for an idea of the Luciferian, then, yeah, I think I'm, I'm drifting off into... <laughs> I'm not sure where I'm going with that, but but yeah. So I, I kind of would got got into Elvis via that route through doing that um, that poem, and then since then it kind of it adopted a kind of significance in the pantheon of things that you think about. Well, yeah. Tell me more about Paradise Rocks coming together then. Okay, so well, I mean, so I did this this poem, which was called Paradise Rocks, and it was um, it was a single performance, and it was a, it was a very long time ago, and that kind of went on the back burner. Um, but I just kind of like keep going back to the idea because I kind of, I just think it's a really, I just I just think it's a really fascinating idea that like there is this, because because before Paradise Lost, before Milton, you have um, the idea of the devil in popular culture. He's not cool and he's not like swoony and romantic. He's kind of a trickster. So it's much more of a kind of like little evil goblin who like makes your milk go sour in the night, as opposed to what he is in Milton, which is this sort of romantic, Byronic you know, the figure that you everyone would recognise now as someone who's like brooding and and, and interesting and, and compelling. And Milton wrote the poem Paradise Lost about the fall of man with the intent to make it a kind of justification of God, but kind of by accident he ends up writing this very powerful story about a single character that who's Satan, who is supposed to be evil but actually is much more sympathetic than God who feels kind of distant and cruel. So the plot of that poem is that there's this kind of conservative idyll, conservative idyllic paradise where Adam and Eve are sitting around doing what they're told um, and a almost malevolent authority figure is sat there going, right, well, I've given you this apple, but you're not allowed, or this fruit, you're not allowed to touch it, which is a kind of, it's a dick move. It's not a nice thing to do to people, to, to present them with something and tell them they can't do it, but then give them no good reason. It's kind of, it's almost, if you know humans at all, it's kind of guaranteed to result in the opposite of what you're supposed to want. So there's that story. And when you then look at something like Dirty Dancing or Elvis movies or Footloose or anything, it's the same thing. There's this conservative sort of idea of paradise like these kind of holiday camps it's dirty dancing especially like a holiday camp where everyone's all the rich people are having a great time but then there's like this kind of rebellious undercurrent usually based around a single figure who struts in and by attempting the young people in that world can pull them away from the existing social order and as a result of the rebellion of people tempted by the satanic figure you end up with a collapse of the social order so I kind of noticed that, that that plot was the same as as it, it was like a kind of a, a, a standard plot in both Paradise Lost and in like Elvis movies and Day Dancing and stuff. So I kind of stuck to that idea. And so as time had gone on, I kind of thought, well, I can't ever do this poem commercially in any way because A, it's a poem and no one likes those. And um, B, because all the songs are just like Elvis songs and they're owned by other people. Um, but I did think if I could write my own songs you know, that were kind of in the style of then it would then be something I could do. So I kind of threw the whole existing poem away, started again from scratch a couple of years ago, 
maybe actually four or five years ago, and rewrote the whole thing with original music, um, original script and everything, and then just started the process of trying to get that on stage, which is just really, really hard, because <laughs> like, it's much harder than bands, because you need loads of people. Um, and um, so we tried a couple of times, we sort of had a few meetings and people would come down and it, and it sort of obviously worked as a concept, but it didn't really kind of click into anything that we could make happen. And then, um, so about a year ago, our friend Fran, who's been doing um, like backing singing on Indelicates Records for, for years, um, she just, she'd like quit being a doctor. <laughs> she was like halfway through learning to be a doctor and she just came into a we were recording like the sessions for the last record and she just like oh yeah i've quit doing that now to do musical theater instead which i was like oh, that's interesting <laughs> maybe you could just have this show off me and then you could do it and then i wouldn't have to and that'd be easier and then just over the over a year it kind of seemed like she, you know she was having trouble getting people to agree to be in the cast so i was like well, we can find more cast and then it's like well i can't actually let this go as much as i wanted to so we ended up uh, me julia and her really working it together so it ended up with like people just sudden, suddenly just people seemed like quite interested in, in doing it. We managed to put together um, Lily, who's in Fight Milk and most of her family and relations are in it now. And um, everyone in the band is kind of in it to a various extent. And Julia kind of took away the music and like what had been previously some demos that were kind of quite unrealizable. Um, like, you know, I told, like, I'll just demo it for an orchestra on the basis that I'll get one at some point. And that was stupid, but, but Julia had taken it away and turned it into a, um, something that could be played on a piano successfully so it just kind of came together and then um, to the point where we were able to book, find a theatre that wanted it and do a couple of shows and then you know, it was you know, like an insane kind of couple of months of trying to find out if it was possible to put together a, a musical and it sort of was so that was fine so we, we did that um, at the end of June and we're currently booking in new shows we've got something in Brighton confirmed and then a bunch we're looking at so yeah. You mentioned in the program that once you started, there was a certain magic that started bringing it together. You tell me yeah. about that. Well, I just, I mean, just because like for years it just seemed so impossible that like we'd keep going, well, how can we even begin to get this together? But suddenly people seemed a lot more willing to, um, to just, people just seemed willing. It was kind of just the magic of people's, suddenly they were able to believe in it. And while, and it, it just, I guess it just kind of came together in a way that, um, had previously just seemed completely impossible because it isn't really possible to do. I mean, anyone will tell you you can't put on a musical. Um, they're too hard. And, like, especially one that hasn't been written, there's, like, no template for it. And if you've got no money and, like, no... I mean, yeah, it's just one of those things that, like, there's a reason why there, there aren't very many musicals in the world being produced. Um, but it just, you know, people just seem suddenly willing to, to put everything they had into it and... And yeah, and once that kind of magic goes, it also everything sort of fits into place, and suddenly it all makes sense, and you start noticing. But to be honest, when I say magic, what I probably mean is manic episodes. <laughs> like you get that sort of hyper awareness of coincidence, and everything becomes really religious. But that, I, I'm over that now, and that was a, it was a brief, uh, a weird month. But but basically, it just you know people just seemed willing to work on it. It, was, it all came together quite well. But you were also seeing synchronicities everywhere, right? Uh, absolutely everywhere yeah um i'm trying to remember i think there's some examples of that in the program i've forgotten which ones they were but you know it was it was just you know just just everything every time you turned on the internet there'd be something about elvis or hawaii and suddenly like you i think like two doors down from the theater it was in like suddenly like a week before there was a new tiki bar opening that was like had all this imagery that was exactly the same as the show and like and just you know suddenly like 
every like like Asda started stocking a huge new range of a range of Hawaiian props that would be really appropriate and things like that and like you know Milton's cottage were doing festivals and they've got like an, ex an exhibit about ways that Milton's been adapted in the 20th century and someone had been there and pointed that out to me just but just everywhere you'd look it would be like yeah uh this apparently all all perfectly fits together but I think that's the way you know it's the it's it's um the William Burroughs the 23 thing isn't it? it's like once you have a thing in mind you start seeing it anywhere and everywhere and then you start seeing it slightly more places that that can explain and that's when you probably have to phone a doctor and tell them that you will mania is out of control <laughs> but then even when it's back under control it's still everywhere so it's you know who knows so tell me how hawaii fits in well it's not really hawaii is the point i mean it's, it's sort of like because there's there's hawaii like the the colonially occupied stolen territory which was like um thieved from local the local queen by the Dole company in the in the early 20th century there's that Hawaii but then there's the the sort of brilliant fake Hawaii of um the exotica movement so there's this like offshoot of lounge music in the in the 60s and 70s where they just sort of invented the music that Hawaii ought to have if Hawaii would live up to its expectations as a tropical paradise. So it's all this like Martin Denny and Les Baxter and all this stuff. And like, and that whole tiki bar thing and like they're kind of, it's all based in some way in a real Hawaii, but actually it's not Hawaii. It's, a, it's an American comment on itself, I guess. It's kind of it's that Orientalism thing where you define yourself by what you're not. Um, so that invented tropical nature. So there's, it's that Hawaii that I'm talking about. And there is a sense in which when you were looking, because originally the, the poem and the first draft of the musical they were all set in um like a kind of northeastern as in northeast of america not newcastle um like a um a sort of uh long islandy holiday camp with like white buck shoes and, and and khakis and stuff like that um kind of like the day dancing holiday camp and that just never seemed like interesting enough but then when you go back to paradise lost obviously it's supposed to be paradise and if you're talking about 50s 60s america the idea of paradise is this constructed idea of Hawaii. So that kind of seemed to fit very neatly into it. When it, when I sort of realised that, it was like, something, oh, like, well, here's a style of music we can co-opt, and here's a, a whole bunch of, like, tropes that we can reach into and use because, you know, it's such a well-established um, cultural touchstone, this idea. Because I think Hawaiian statehood comes, like, right at the end of the 50s, and then there's this big boom um, in culture where people suddenly are obsessed with Hawaii for a little while and then Elvis obviously also obsessed with Hawaii and kind of saw it as a as a prime vacation spot and sort of spiritual home for Elvisiness and had his jungle room in Graceland I don't know if you've been around Graceland but they've got his like one of his one of his many living rooms has got like a waterfall in it and like leaves and carpets up the wall and stuff and it's like it's that particular aesthetic of like of just fake Hawaii that I think the musical really wants to embrace as much as possible. And the more money we get to put music the musical on, the more shit Hawaiian tap we will cover the stage with, basically. <laughs> well, that's interesting, the commercialization of Hawaii, because, I mean, ever since Elvis, like, Teenage Rebellion has also been commercialized and, you know, exploited to make as much money as possible. Damn right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is. I mean, and I, and I suppose that's the... the the basic tension in any story about that is that like you get this idea of I mean that's always the idea of like anything to do with music is it's always these people who claim to be rebels while making a lot of money for the worst men <laughs> just that's that's what 
anyone doing music is doing almost all the time. And it's all that like, it's, it's that sort of urge to go, yeah, fuck capitalism and put that on a t-shirt and then sell that for 20 pounds and give most of that money to capitalists. And it's like, it's, it's that constant tension with like youthful rebellion and the youth rebellion is a sort of ultimately futile but endlessly fascinating idea. So you keep going back to it, even though it's always a disastrous disappointment. <laughs> But it's an interesting tension to have. I think if you're aware of that tension, I think it comes out quite an interesting way. So. You've mentioned Dirty Dancing now a couple of times. I keep going back to that, yeah. It's because it's the most perfect, like, it's the most, like, um, Paradise Lost film. I mean, apart from, because the, the Elvis films, kind of, they are, but, like, things like, um, but a lot of the Elvis films, he's more nice than you'd want, like, the, like the idealised Elvis movie would see him as kind of just a... a, a more of a rebellious figure than he actually is in a lot of those films or a lot of those films he's kind of a sort of worthy sea captain who's just a little bit from the wrong side of the tracks whereas like the Patrick Swayze and Dirty Dancing is more Elvis than Elvis almost I'll tell you another one um, Cool as Ice the Vanilla Ice movie which is clearly Vanilla Ice's attempt to make an Elvis movie but he's gone yeah, you know what those Elvis movies lack yellow shell suit that's what that means so he's come back in put a yellow shell suit on and instead of riding like a harley he rides like a a, suzuki, a yellow neon suzuki around cool as ice check it out very similar to paradise lost so how do you feel about the story of the fall well I, i'm i mean it's interesting because i suppose my angle on it is quite pro satan in that i think that knowledge is good um and eating from the tree of knowledge is a sort of necessary thing to do so to my mind the idea that you're supposed to live in happiness and ignorance when there is something you could do off your own back to acquire knowledge um and free yourself from ignorance at the expense of your own bliss i think it's probably the morally correct thing to do so i suppose my my version of my version of the fall of mankind is that the fall of mankind is a necessary and good thing to do, and that, and that's quite satanic. But um, yeah, I think that's that's where I would come down on the side of it. But that's the but what's interesting about Paradise Lost is that lots of people over time, Blake especially, but then William Empson in the twentieth century, would say that Milton, without meaning to, had accidentally come down on the satanic side as well. So I think that's where the big interest in Paradise Lost comes from, because like Paradise Regained, which is his sequel to Paradise Lost, in which it's just Jesus comes and he's great and he Jesus. It's really boring and everyone hates it because there's like no fundamental tension between the guy trying to be religious and sort of failing and accidentally giving loads of loads of um, ammo to the other side. So yeah, I think I come down on the on behalf on the side of of Milton's um, of Milton's suppressed psyche rather than his stated intention. When you, you mentioned it before, you said apple, but then you changed it to fruit. Do you have a theory about that? Well, I think in the Bible, it's not an apple, is it? It's just um, in, in, the, in the apple, in, in the Bible, it's just a fruit. No one's entirely sure exactly which fruit it would be. Um, the apple, I think, is a later, um, intro- the apple is introduced later. Is it? So the, the sort of symbolic apple isn't, nece- isn't something that's actually biblical. It's got no roots. So it's, it's just a fruit of the tree of knowledge in the Bible. So... Um, it's up to you what fruit you'd most expect to find growing somewhere in the biblical Palestine in the 4000 BC. I read a, a Kabbalistic interpretation that uh, it's okay. actually grapes, and they right. got, they got drunk. Um, oh, we see. Makes sense. Yeah, that can work. <laughs> okay, no, they got got hammered and like we're like, dude, we're naked. <laughs> yeah, okay. 
your musicals have to do with the biblical and the religious. Where does mm-hmm. that come from for you? I don't know. I just, I mean, like, there's a sense in which I think, like, my favorite concept albums, especially, and by extension, musicals tend to be about religious things. There's like, it's quite a. There's something about the religious that that lends itself to musical theatre because I suppose to an extent, mu- a certain level of um, of church is musical theatre. It's you know it's, it's, that's how you get that response from the audience in a church is you kind of intersperse like a charged language with devotional music and that kind of gets a certain response so i suppose there's a sense in which musical theater itself is quite religious and so you get musicals like i mean obviously the obvious ones like joseph and jesus christ superstar which are sort of directly religious but even like other like kind of android Webber things like like cats is all about like death and and you know the worst musicals like like cats is all about sort of sad people who are about to die trying to get eternal life and starlight express which is just about religious trains and like, there's a kind of sense in, in like just religion always kind of finds its way in a little bit to musicals that I grew up with. So there's that. But also, I suppose, religion, I find religion endlessly interesting, even though I've never really been religious. So I think, I think people who believe things make for good characters on stage because people who are sort of doubting and questioning themselves, it's less in- less interesting watch. I know it's a really difficult question because like, it's obviously true that almost everything... I've written to the stage has been based around Satan and religion in some way and like the David Koresh album and various things like that. But I don't really have a good answer as to why I just keep do going back to them and, and other ideas don't seem to obsess me enough to finish anything. So there must be some reason. Maybe, I, maybe it's not me. Maybe it's God working through me. So there's that. Could be that. I'm going to say that. It's just that. <laughs> So tell me about the other two for people who aren't familiar. Uh, okay, so um, the Book of Job, the musical, is the third best musical of all time based on the biblical character whose name begins with J, um, or fourth, depending on how much you like Godspell. Um, and it's, it, I mean, that's kind of a straight um, spoof of like uh, Android Webbery, jo- Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat sort of thing, but obviously with the Book of the Bible that is least easy to understand without pretty hardcore theology because Job if you if you don't know is, is the story of uh, a character in the Bible who um, he's like the best dude in the whole of the East and uh, God is hanging out with Satan as he does occasionally in the Old Testament and Satan's like yeah yeah that guy he loves you but if you were to smash up his life he'd, he'd, he'd resent you and would stop loving you and so God does he gives him like he kills all his children and his livestock and burns his house down and gives him every disease going um and then Job is, and then Job's friends come over and try and tell him that you know this is ridiculous. You should just go along with, he should just curse God now because God clearly hates him. But he almost does, but then he doesn't, and that's supposed to be instructional in some way to life. So it's, it's a difficult thing. The theology of it is really difficult and interesting because it's like that's probably the closest to what life's actually like. <laughs> and if you and trying to reconcile. Um, the capricious malignancy of what life does to people for absolutely no reason with a belief in God is a particularly difficult thing to do, but the Book of Job makes a good attempt at it. So, you know, you just get to um, turn that into a light-hearted comedy musical, which, I don't know, seems to work quite well. Christians tend to like it, which is very, very heartening. It's got a, a song about a nasty rash of many colours. It's, it's that kind of thing. So How do you put that, that on compared to the new one? 
Well, the new ones, the new one has got jokes in it, but it's not like a comedy. It's it's um, it's more of a. I don't know it's sort of it's sort of a. I don't know what it is. It's like a. It's not a drama, really. It's just. I mean, it's just more of a straightforward. Paradise Rocks is more of a straightforward musical in terms of like there's jokes in it and there's drama in it and you know it's supposed to be a, a fun night out uh, with good songs, but it's supposed to make you feel things. I don't know that Job would make anyone actually cry. Um, maybe in places a little bit, but you know they'd be, have to be very sensitive. Whereas I think the new one, there's bits where you could, I think you could legitimately cry in in, in Paradise Rock. Yeah, I, I suppose Paradise Rock is more. It's less of a spoof. It's not really. A, it's not really a spoof. Um, it's not meta at all. It's kind of quite heartfelt and and sincere. Whereas um, the Book of Job is quite meta, and you know you kind of is the joke, jokes are about the form as well as things. So it's, more, it's so yeah. I mean it's, like, that's the basic difference. I'm sure, oh, you asked about the other one as well. So the other one, which isn't yet a musical though, it, I mean, it is intended to be so in the next few years. Is um, David Koresh Superstar, which is very serious apart from the name. Uh, but I like that. I like it when you get like one really bad. Like there's a, there's a book about Jimmy Savile called In Plain Sight, which is a really serious book, in which um, the history of Britain's most prolific paedophile is, is examined in very great academic detail, and it's you know beautifully written, very very sober, serious book. But um, so and then but so the guy's written it and gone right. I'm gonna make this. I'm gonna make this the definitive sober serious account of the Jimmy Savile um, scandal, and I'm gonna allow myself one joke. <laughs> So he's gone, the first chapter is called Apocalypse Now Then. And he's kind of gone, right, that's the last joke. We're not having another one, but that one's really good. So I think David Corey's Superstar has got a good joke. You know, the, the, the title is a pun, but it's quite serious. Um, and that is a retelling of the um, the passion of David Corish in Waco, um, but, but kind of as a Jesus Christ Superstar style um, musical. Um, and it is the intention there is to write what would a passion play be like if the assumption going in was that the Messiah figure was definitely not the son of God. Because you kind of, the passion play otherwise makes, you know, you, you, the, the story that's told over and over again about, about Jesus is always proceeds from the assumption that he's right and the stuff he's saying is true and that he is the son of God. And that's how those passion plays work. But what's the same story like if you just basically know from the start that he's wrong? Um, and so that's what David Koresh Superstar does. And you, you get, I think you get going to some really interesting places with that, especially seeing as where that um, event, the Waco siege, exists in history is really interesting in terms of looking back and there's that kind of 1990s end of history thing where, um, you know, there wasn't really, there weren't really enemies and, you know, the Cold War had ended and it wasn't, and 9-11 hadn't happened yet and people just sort of, just just looking for conflict where they when it was hard to find and so you'd end up with these weirdos in you know texas being suddenly supreme of supreme national and cultural importance to america and as and consequently the world so it's kind of this whole interesting weird milieu of of cults and apocalypticism in the absence of evidence for an apocalypse which i think gets more and more interesting as more and more evidence for apocalypse um, seems to mount up in the actual world as opposed to the imagined world of, of cult leaders, and everything's getting very, um, very weird now. So yeah, so that, that's the other one. That's more. That's more of a serious thing. And we're, we're, we're working now on trying to see how that can be staged in a in an interesting way in the next couple of years as we do more musical theatre things. Anything else you want to say about Paradise Rocks? Um, oh, that's probably enough. I mean, it's um, yeah, it's it's, it's all right. You can if you the. the the main thing I'd want to say to anyone is that there's a showreel online now at um, the website, which is paradiserocks.me.uk, and that's got like four of the songs, and 
some talking about it and that that's and you know if you're interested in that that's the best place to to find out what we're doing um but no in terms of um justifying it i think i've probably said enough <laughs> yeah i want to talk about the indelicates for a little bit because okay. i you guys are like the best band that nobody knows about so <laughs> this will introduce you to uh sure. okay. people. so yeah, give us a like a brief history so uh, the Indelicates at, at its core um, is me and Julia um, and Julia just before we started she used to be in, a, in another band and she quit that band because um, she felt like Carrie at the prom and um, so we, she was kind of without a band and I was uh, not aware at the time that bands were something one could do um, but having seen Julia be in her other band I was like oh maybe you can um, and we were together so we were thinking, well maybe maybe bands are a thing you can do so we'll um we were both in a really bad mood so we just thought we'd start the most spiteful band we could think of and then um, stuck a uh, we wrote a song it sounds like the libertines were all over the place and um everyone in all of the all the music pressing like desperate for like pete doherty to die and provide the new generation of um of noughties indie with a proper martyr that they could all get behind and sell a bunch of records and it seemed like that was a, the thing that was going to happen at some point and everyone was just sort of waiting and that was going to be the thing that catapulted new noughties indie into the stratosphere of like grunge um and he kept not dying and everyone was clearly annoyed about it so we wrote a song about that called waiting for big doctor to die and stuck that on the internet in like 2005 maybe um and i, I don't know i suppose I mean, I don't know what viral means. It's a vital word, but a lot of people heard it, and like, including some, um, someone like, like Neil Gaiman got really into it, and that was like, very weird. The internet was fairly like that kind of thing happening on the internet was fairly unusual and new at that point. So it was suddenly like, oh, we've suddenly got fans like in different countries, and we haven't really done any gigs yet, so we probably should do some of those. So we just, I just started getting at that point. Um, got a record deal with a hilarious joke of a record label and um, they didn't really do a very good job of doing that so that lasted for one album and since then we've made five more uh, and more taking over more and more of that process ourselves so now it's kind of all self-sustaining and we do it all in-house and yeah we kind of run our little mom and pop um, indie enterprise <laughs> releasing our records as they go so yeah that, that's basically the story of us. Okay, I know, but I don't, I don't know which I don't know which details are important to you. So I don't know. Like each record doesn't necessarily have a, a, a theme. Theme is probably too strong of a word, but there's a they're each their own sort of entity. Yeah. Okay, so the the, the first record is is like, I mean, the first record is us. I think we sound. I, I know it's the only one that I find difficult to listen to, even though I'm sure it's. I know it's the one. That, I mean, it's weird when you because like you if you are a band that like their first record is the one that, that probably sells the most because it's the one that's most promoted because it's got like some money behind it. Every other record you're doing is like dividing the fan base in half. So you sort of start off with a pool of people and then you sort of start alienating them record by record. You're just down to the court, the hardcore by the end. So the first, but the first record is one I find quite difficult to listen to because I can hear myself not really knowing how to sing yet and like making mistakes that I wouldn't make now about like productions and all the stuff that no one else would care about, but like I'm aware of it. Um, I'm not like copying Luke Haynes too much, to be honest, and like that's not that annoys me. Um, but yeah, so the first record is just a really sort of spiteful, um, uh, just us complaining about 2000s era indie and how it annoys us. And um, 
and, and you know everything everything that's current at the time and then from then on each album's been i suppose i suppose yeah some of them kind of have a thing like there's there are two well probably two and a half of them are concept albums so the third album is david crow superstar like i was saying about which we're now trying to turn into a musical and then the fifth album is a, a space concept album about um the international communications network achieving singularity level consciousness but being so annoyed by humanity's prattle on like twitter that it just decides to leave and um and fuck off to space forever and and what people do as a result uh and the most recent one univer breaker is like about um so uh, well i got kind of a bit obsessed with the idea of mr punch and jimmy savile amalgamating into a into like a demonic force that was ultimately responsible for brexit and all the fascism you get now um so that kind of became this weird um like a magical ritual in designed to banish that spirit um while spending a lot of time talking about council house poltergeists and and this kind of deep english idea um so that was last year's and then what other, what other ones have we done oh yeah songs between lovers that's kind of like yeah sort of a, a an album a, a very disappointed album about um and it's, it's a good album and um <laughs> diseases of england which is about being really sad so yeah so I don't know, ask, ask me anything you like about any of those, and I'm sure I'll come up with something. <laughs> Tell me a bit more about corporate records then, like how uh, the process, you, it's completely 100% DIY. Yeah, well, I mean, so, like I said, we were, we were signed for the first record, um, had like an, an advance and stuff, and I think as we watched what happened with them, just the sheer amount of money that just got chucked away on nothing and like just just stupid stuff at every level, um, you know, nice people, but like just like the very idea of a, of a record company just seemed so ridiculous when increasingly it was there was no actual cost associated with distributing money on the internet, like distributing music on the internet. You, you could record it at home and you could put out and at no point were there any costs. So the justification for a record label that they covered costs to allow you to distribute music seemed just like increasingly pointless. And you just see record labels in the North East just just having no real reason to exist. So just coming up with things to spend money on just for no reason. And so we thought, well, when we, um, well, we didn't get dropped. We, we begged to be dropped, I suppose. We, we kind of, they were, we were in this like limbo where they, we had a contractual obligation to not make a record for anyone else, but they didn't have a contractual obligation to release any record we made. So we were just sort of waiting for them to decide if they but we couldn't do anything. So we were just all like, oh, this is ridiculous. So we kind of ended up sending, sending them letters, begging them to drop us just so we could do something because otherwise we couldn't make a record. And it was like, there was no, so we thought, well, we needed to find a way of releasing the second album. And so corporate records, we thought, the idea was that it would be like a record company that you could just sign yourself to and that anyone could then say they were signed to corporate records and it would all be like an automated platform. And it was basically, pretty, it was probably the same week that Bandcamp had the same idea, but they had their idea in like Silicon Valley with loads of money and we had our idea without any money. And, and just so we just kind of worked with our friend Paul to put the back end together and made that so the but like you know it's basically like band camp but with you know more of an attitude <laughs> more of a bad attitude about it but the idea was more that you know anyone can be on corporate records there's no signing process it's just an automated record label and it just takes it takes um any of the it does everything that a record company currently does but does it for free and automatically and you know we take a tiny percentage off the top and and anyone can use it but like i say i mean i think things like band camp um, marketed that in a more friendly, less aggressive way, um, 
but I always thought it was quite an aggressive, uh, rebellious idea. So it seemed more appropriate to me to do it in a punk rock way. But I think ultimately we probably could have made loads of money if we'd done it in a friendly way instead. <laughs> but everything we've done since has been on corporate records, and we kind of every time we've released a record, we've tried to kind of come up with a new way of of, um, of funding it that was that was novel and involved us doing things that weren't expected so that we could just basically because the aim has always been to just to keep to not stop and like that's the main thing we don't we don't want to stop making records that's and, and everything we do is kind of it's not about how much money can we make it's how can we make enough money that we don't have to stop doing this and so far each record we've managed to come up with something that's enabled us to do that so what's next um, okay, so uh, we're recording Paradise Rocks as an album, um, kind of as it as live. So that will that will come out. That will be on Spotify and stuff. Then we're trying to do. So we'll keep performing that now that we have a show that we're proud of. Um, we will probably be trying to stage David Courage Superstar as a, as a slightly more experimental, difficult musical with our, with our theatre company that me, Junior and, and Fran are setting up as we speak. Um, and then I expect there'll be an Indelicates album next year, though I have no idea currently what that will be like and if it will have a concept or not. So I'm not sure, we'll see. You mentioned punk rock and Luke Haynes, but other than that, I have no idea. What, what do you like to listen to? Carter. Oh, it's, I, I just kind of ruin music for myself. I kind of don't. I, I mean, I, I listen to a lot. I listened to a lot of um, Exotica, so that that kind of like Martin Denny, Les Baxter. Right now, I'm super into a band called Wishful Thinking. Right, who is that? Like that awful genre of like. <laughs> I just like music. I hate um, like terrible genre of like music from like the very late '60s, early '70s, where like really sincere men write folk rock songs about like Hiroshima and stuff. So I was getting so like, wishful thinking. They had a, it was a huge hit in Germany. I've got a song called Hiroshima, in which he he does a he's a, they say Hiroshima because you know it was the seventies and they didn't know how to say it. But like um, it's like I think it has the line "Fly metal bird to Hiroshima," which is just so bad. So I'm super into that at the moment. Um, I don't know. I just I like to just find weird little little sub genres and get obsessively into those for a little bit. And, and because I kind of feel like like the music, like we, like indie guitar music, I just I don't really think anyone's going to surprise me very much. I mean, there are things I like. I mean, you know, my, my friend Lily's band White Milk are really good, and like, um, and then there are bands that you, that you sort of notice and go really good. But in terms of what I would actually choose to listen to, it's it's, it's much more just well. I mean, like, Hauntology is quite cool. Like the sort of Derrida influenced electronica that's all about. Um, like the sound, the sort of poltergeist sounds and stuff like that. There's a Brighton electronic guy, uh, Black Channels, did a whole thing called Two Knocks for Yes. I was really into that for a little while. Um, and then also mainly what I listen to, actually, to be honest, because we've got a three-year-old. So I mainly listen to an album um, called Dino Story by Mike Whitler, um, which is a concept album about dinosaurs. So that's the main thing that I've had on <laughs> last year. Really good, though. I mean, like, the Stegosaurus one, everyone agrees, is a bona fide stone-cold banger, so I recommend it. So my last question is always, say you had stolen a space shuttle and were flying mm -hmm. it directly into the sun, mm -hmm. what would you want to be listening to? Why am I doing that? I mean, like, 
it's, it's my, I've stolen it. I can fly it anywhere. Why am I just immolating myself? For whatever reasons you have of your own, this is what you've chosen to do. And what am I listening to? Yeah. Okay. I mean, I'd probably put some of my, like, just the intelligence on, just to, like, check. <laughs> just, like, just to, I, I'd probably get really into it. I'd probably go, oh, what could I have done better with the production <laughs> on one of these records? But let's say not that. Let's say not that. Um, let's say something actually um, good and interesting. Um, oh, God, that's really hard. <laughs> because it's like, I think the reason it's hard is because, like, it's, it's the same reason I don't really have any tattoos, is I can't imagine something being true forever. So I, I, I'll, I'll say something now, but it would be something that I only like this week. And then next week, I'll be like, why did I say that? I could have said this. Um, so what do I what do I consistently like? I'll tell you what, I really like Under Pressure, right? But not the version that Freddie Mercury sings, the version that Gail Ann Dorsey sings live. Right, so I'm having that. So not not Under Pressure by Queen, like Under Pressure, but from a David Bowie live recording with Gail Ann Dorsey singing the Freddie Mercury bits. That's what I'll have. I think that fits. I'm flying into the sun. Why, why lie? That's what I want. So there we go. Always an interesting conversation with Simon. I'll be posting show notes with a bunch of indelicate stuff at www.thecounterforce.net, so be sure to check those out. You can watch the Paradise Rocks showreel at paradiserocks.me.uk, and you can release your music through corporate records and check out other cool acts on there at corpor.at. And definitely check out the indelicates at theindelicates.com. As I mentioned earlier, their Songs for Swinging Lovers is one of my favorite albums of all time. The day it was released, I checked Last FM at night, and my stats showed that I listened to it 13 times that day. It was a tough choice of what song of theirs to end the podcast with. Uh, Savages is astonishingly good, one of the best songs ever written. Uh, we Hate the Kids and New Art for the People from the first album are classics. And Beyond the Radio Horizon from Elevator Music is great. But I'm going to go with Ill. I love this tune, and one of my favorite ever live performances that I've done was playing a solo acoustic show at T.T. the Bear's Place in Cambridge, Massachusetts in 2014, and Keith Top of the Pops and I just decided to cover this one at the last minute, and it was awesome. So here's Ill from the Indelicate Songs for Swinging Lovers. Yes.
try